Hey everyone, you're listening to the Covenant Grace Church podcast. We are a gospel-centered community on mission with Jesus in Port Elizabeth, South Africa. Thank you for joining us as we journey through the book of Ephesians. Enjoy the message. All right, so uh, if you have a Bible, you can take it out and turn to Ephesians chapter 4. If you don't, we're going to have the text on the screen behind me. And uh, it's just been a great joy to work through this amazing letter with the whole congregation, and I do pray and hope that you are benefiting and growing. And uh, the ultimate goal is that we would grow in maturity and become more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ as we study His Word together. This Word isn't just any Word, it is the inspired Word of God. And so it is the very words, the very breath, Paul uses the word breath, inspired, the breath of God is how we receive the Scriptures from the Lord. And so... Ephesians 4, the whole chapter as we've been studying it, has really been all about three things. It's been about church unity, it's been about church diversity, and it's been about church purity. And we've been saying that actually that's the vision of who God is. God is both one unified, God is both one and three persons diversified, and God is holy, He is pure, and we are called to be like God. God. And so last Sunday, we spoke about the things that we need to put off. We focused on this idea of purity and maturity, that certain things need to be put off. And in putting off the old self, we need to put in truth. We spoke about the importance of renewing our minds and the influx of the warfare of ideas and images and how those things are attacking our lives and our culture. And then we spoke about how we need to put on Christ and Christ becomes our model for how we are to live our lives. And so the, the, the big analogy is actually a clothing analogy. It's how we dress ourselves. And I, I just want to remind us that Paul is arguing that we put off the old clothing. We put off the old life. He, he's arguing for change. That if you've internally changed, then that affects externals. And if we put off the old life, then we are clothed in Christ's righteousness. And so I just want to double-click on this idea of clothing. The kind of clothing we wear really depends on certain roles that we assume in life. For example, if you go to a wedding, I did a wedding yesterday and I needed to dress up, didn't I? And so when you go to a wedding, you dress a particular way. And if you go to a funeral, it's it's different, right? It's, it's slightly different. It's smart, but slightly different. So depending on the role or the function or the event, you dress accordingly. The same is true for sailors or soldiers. They don't wear the same uniform. They have different functions, different roles, and so they wear different attire. The same is true for prisoners. But... When we change our role, or when we change our status, we also change our dress. So when prisoners are released, they ditch the orange overalls, right? Because now they're free, and they can wear ordinary clothes. And so the freedom that has come changes them even externally. Even soldiers, when they clock out of the army, get dressed into civvies. And so there's a change. And Paul's using this analogy to help us understand that when we've been changed 
by Christ. And when Christ invades our lives, it's not just internal change, but there's also external change that takes place. And so he continues on this argument of putting off and putting on. And so let's read as Paul continues this thought in verse 25. He says, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, Forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. The central verse in this particular passage is verse 30. Verse 30, have a look there again with me. We read this, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. There are three things that Paul is arguing for. Number one, the Holy Spirit is God and can be grieved. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. A few things we need to know. Firstly, the Holy Spirit is a person. He's the third person of our one true God that we worship. One God Revealed to us in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Each member of those three persons is God. There's not three gods. There is one God, three persons. And so the person of the Holy Spirit is a person. It's not a force. The idea of Star Wars, that's the wrong idea of the force. And you can move things with the force. The Holy Spirit's not a force. The Holy Spirit is a person who can be grieved. So that's the logical implication. If the Holy Spirit can be grieved, then it's more than just an it. The Holy Spirit is a person. He has feelings. He can be pained. The word grieved is literally the word in the Greek pained. We can inflict pain, in a sense, on God. The Holy Spirit is God and can be grieved. However, we do need to know that the Holy Spirit, although he can be grieved, he cannot ultimately be defeated because he's God. So although he's a person and he can be pained, 
He can never be defeated because he's God. And so because he's God, he has feelings and he has emotions. Just like Jesus, when he walked on this earth, had feelings and emotions. But he cannot be resisted because he's God. And so although the spirit can be grieved, the spirit cannot be ultimately resisted. You may resist for a little season. You may have a season of resistance, but not ultimately. Ultimately, the Holy Spirit cannot be resisted because he is God and his purposes will be done. Now, in this context where Paul is speaking about the grieving of the Holy Spirit, the context is not necessarily super spiritual. It's not that you didn't enter into some kind of super spiritual plane, and if you don't enter into the super spiritual plane, then you are grieving the Holy Spirit. The context is very practical, isn't it? The context is sin. It's having put away. It's the whole context of put off and put on. It's the context of anger and malice and slander and lying and stealing. And Paul is saying that it's sin that grieves the Holy Spirit. It it literally pains the Spirit. It pains God. For many reasons. It's the very reason he came for us. He died for our sins. The person of Christ died for our sins. And that purchase the Spirit wants to apply to our lives. He doesn't want there to be an inconsistency between what Christ has done for me and how the Spirit applies that work. The two should be consistent. And so Paul specifically lists some of the sins That grieves the Spirit of God. He lists lying and anger and stealing and bitterness and slander. And as we move on into chapter 5, he's going to speak about sexual immorality. And so the goal is not to grieve the Spirit through living these ways and through continuing in sinful habits. The goal is to please God, to please the Spirit by putting those things off. So the first point is the Holy Spirit is God, and he can be grieved when we continue to dress in our old ways. When we continue to put on that old garment that really doesn't suit you anymore. It's out of date. It's out of fashion. You look silly in it. Paul's saying, take it off. You're grieving the Spirit. It's not consistent with what he's done in you. Number two, notice this. The Holy Spirit seals your salvation. Look again at verse 30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. You would almost anticipate that if if the threat is don't grieve the Holy Spirit because then you're going to lose your salvation. That would be the logical implication. The logical thought would be, don't you dare grieve the Spirit. Don't you dare continue in sin because then you're going to be unsealed. That's the logical implication. But that's not what the text says. And this is what's so powerful about the gospel. The gospel is 
stop sinning because you are saved, not in order to be saved. The gospel is the good news of what Christ has done for us. We are not saved through our do's and don'ts. We are not saved by putting on good works. No, no, we're saved by Christ's good works. We're saved by a work outside of us, therefore put on. And the threat, isn't it amazing? The threat is if you stumble, if you fall, if you sin, you're going to unseal yourself. You're going to go from being a child of God to back to a child of the devil. That's not what we read. What we read is God doesn't make mistakes. The Holy Spirit is God and he doesn't make mistakes. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed. And this isn't just any sealing. It's a guarantee. What guarantee? For the day of redemption, that future day. And so he's arguing, work out your salvation. Work it out. Don't work for it. You can't. Receive it. Receive salvation. Trust in Jesus. He's your salvation. Now work it out. Isn't that amazing? He's he's saying that we don't put off sin in order to be saved. No, no, we're saved by grace and therefore we put off sin. Ephesians 1 argues for this idea of sealing. In verse 13, in him you also, when you heard the word word of truth, the gospel of your salvation... It's when you heard it, when you received it, and believed in him. There was a trusting in Christ. What happens? You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Now, some argue and and say, are you arguing for once saved, always saved? Are you arguing for that, 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 that if you just give your life to Jesus once and then you can carry on living however you please, once saved, always saved? And, and that needs to be just unpacked a little bit because in some ways that's true and in other ways it's not stated very well. I think a better statement is if saved, always saved. Because salvation is an ongoing outworking. It's not that, oh, when I was 12, I gave my life to Jesus. Now I can live as I please. Because then I want to ask you, what is it that pleases you? Because that may expose that you've never been saved. And so, yes, we are arguing for eternal perseverance. That those whom God has saved will be sealed. God doesn't make mistakes until the day of redemption. But the question is, are you truly saved? saved. And the worry around this question is, but then if you give people that assurance, won't they go on sinning? Well, when your heart has been changed, then sin grieves you because you have the Holy Spirit who is grieved. And it doesn't mean you don't make mistakes, but it's that those mistakes worry you, that you're at war with your flesh. I have people come to me and say, I'm, I'm stressed, I'm worried. I'm, wor- I'm like, what are you worried about? I'm worried I'm not a Christian. I'm like, that's a great sign. That's a sign of grace. It's a, that could be a really gracious sign to you. 
Because non-Christians don't worry about that. And so if you're wrestling with sin, if you're fighting, that's a good sign. Keep fighting. It's a sign of God's grace. But then notice what he says next, third point. The Holy Spirit is God and can be grieved. The Holy Spirit seals your salvation. But then the ongoing purpose of the Spirit is the Holy Spirit sanctifies those whom he has sealed. And this is what Paul is arguing for. He's saying that the Spirit is given to the church as both our comforter and to convict of sin. It's the Spirit of God in us who prompts us, who nudges us, who convicts us through Scripture, showing us that this is the right way and this is the wrong way. And, 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 and the thing is that when we become Christians, we don't only have a new relationship with God, we now also have a new relationship with sin. Some people say, oh, I've got a new relationship with God. I want to know, do you have a new relationship with sin? Because if you have a new relationship with God, it means you now have a new relationship with sin. And here's the important thing to log. It's, it, people don't naturally drift towards holiness. It requires effort. The great Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, the idle Christian tempts the devil to tempt him. The idle Christian tempts the devil. Did you know you could do that? The lazy Christian. The lazy Christian tempts the devil to tempt him. And this is why Paul is writing these verses. Paul is writing under the power and inspiration of the Spirit. The Spirit is working through the Scriptures, and he's convicting us. He's showing us. Now, he takes aim at certain things here, doesn't he? Verse 25, he takes aim at lying. Verse 26, he takes aim at anger. Verse 28, he takes aim at stealing. Verse 29, he takes aim at slander and gossip. And in chapter 5 next week, we're going to look at he takes aim at sexual immorality. So what he's really focusing here on is interpersonal relationships, how we relate to one another, which is why he ends with being tender-hearted with one another. We are members of one another. But what is slander and what is lying and why is that such a, such a dangerous thing? Why is it so dangerous for us to, to slander one another or gossip about one another? Well, recently there was um, a teaching that I listened to, and we listened to it as a leadership team. And um, it was a study, an interesting study that took place in 1944. It was a a behavioral study called the Haida Simmel Story. And um, we're going to screen this little little clip. There's no audio to it, um, but it's a, a little clip, and I just want you to watch it. And, uh, and the people who initially watched this little video clip, they were asked to do one thing. They were asked to watch it, and then in a group, they were to discuss what's happening in this clip. So let's watch it together. A link to the video clip can be found in the sermon info. And the results were interesting. As people came back, having watched that, the... Interesting thing was that only one person in the entire study group 
saw this clip for what it really was. Because what it really is, is geometric shapes moving across a two-dimensional plane, and that's it. It's just shapes. But that's not what you saw, right? You see, because everyone else in the study came up with an elaborate story to make sense of what's happening. And these are the stories we tell ourselves. Why? Because we are storytelling people. You see, for some people, it was, that was all about an abusive family situation. The husband and wife were fighting, and the child was caught in the midst of it, right? Or it was, the big triangle was the bully. Anyone? Big triangle, bully. Big triangle was the bully, and he's beating up on the small guy on the playground. And he tries to take the circle home. Or the big triangle is the controlling pastor who's trying to keep people in his church. Or for some of you, the big triangle was the angry drunk dad who doesn't approve of his daughter's boyfriend. Or they're all in prison and the big triangle is the ringleader. And the circle is the prison guard who's escorting the new guy to his prison cell. Or whatever your version is. And if we had time, I'm sure we could have multiple versions of what's actually happening there. And instead of seeing simple objects, most of us are imagining vivid human scenarios. And the point of the exercise is to show us that we are storytelling people. And this is both a beautiful thing but also a very dangerous thing. And we do it almost automatically. We see the world in stories. And when we have ideas and images thrust at us, when we live in a social media world like we live in, when we have access to information we have access to, when we are invaded by images nonstop, we begin to create stories that we begin to tell ourselves about people. And the problem is we come to the wrong conclusions. We jump to the wrong assumptions. And these stories have huge impact on our feelings towards one another. I mean, I, when I first watched that, I was angry with the big triangle. Right? And I felt compassion. And I, I, I was fluctuating between this is a house and this is a church. And I was like, this is just not right. I mean, consider the way you would feel. Let's say you were, you, you, you were meeting a friend for a, for a meal. And you're sitting in the restaurant and they are 40 minutes late. Consider the different ways you could process that. If you were thinking to yourself, maybe they had an accident. Maybe there was something urgent that came up. Or you could be thinking, you know, this relationship is clearly more important to me than to them. You see, immediately we are, we're creating stories, ideas that begin to affect our feelings. And the problem is that often that leads to a breakdown of relationship because then we begin to slander and we begin to talk and we begin to gossip and we get angry when we shouldn't get angry. 
So one of the guys that, we, that, that, that does this particular thing wrote a book, and he says this, it's a fairly lengthy quote, but I want to read it for us. He says, every time I make an assumption about someone without confirming it, I am at risk for believing a lie about this person. You see, when Paul says, put off falsehood, stop lying, most of us would say, oh, I, don't, I don't lie. But I think we do this a lot. We create these unconfirmed stories. And if we believe them, we are believing a lie. He goes on, he says, my assumption is just a breath away from misrepresenting reality. Because I have not checked out my assumption with the other person. It's very possible I'm believing something untrue. And effectively bearing false witness against my neighbor. The ninth commandment, do not bear false witness. I am especially prone to this temptation when the other person has hurt or disappointed me. You see, when there's already a little bit of bitterness, and the pastor doesn't greet you at pick and pay, and you begin to make up the story in your head that's confirming your bitterness, You see, we do this automatically. He goes on, he says, that also makes it more likely I will pass on my false assumption to others. Because we need backup. We need to tell someone else about how the pastor just ignored you down the aisle. And when we exchange reality for a mental creation, a hidden assumption, we enter a counterfeit world. At that point, we exclude God from our lives because God does not exist outside of reality and truth. We also wreck relationships by creating needless confusion and conflict. I really think this is so important. It's so important for a church to be mature and healthy and Christ-like. And so just quickly... This is what Paul's arguing for. Firstly, put off lying and put on truth. Verse 25, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. In other words, stop jumping to conclusions. Clarify. Clarify. And if you're holding an issue, sort it out. Stop mind reading. Stop Assuming things. Clarify. Because every time we make an assumption about someone who's hurt or disappointed us, we are believing a lie. Put it off. Put off lying. Put on truth. Notice it's not just put off and leave it there. No, no. Put off and put on. Stop lying. And you may have stopped doing that, but now speak truth, he says. There's both a negative and a positive. He then speaks about anger because often it leads to anger. Verse 26 and 27, be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. In other words, put off sinful anger. There is a a slight difference that we see here. Put off sinful anger and put on righteous anger. And the reason he argues that is because in many ways, God gets angered. 
God gets angered at sin. And God gets angered at injustice. And so there is a godly anger that we can have towards sin and injustice. And so I want to ask you, get angry with your sin. Don't entertain it. Get angry with it. Often, nominal Christians will have bad things happen to them. And you know what they do? They get angry with God. When, when, When sinful things happen to them, I find it really amazing. They get angry with God, and I'm like, why are you angry with God? Get angry with sin. It's sin that got you into this trouble. That's where your anger should be aimed. The other implication here is that the day of your anger should be the same day that you deal with it and move on. Don't let the sun go down. And so you might get angry with someone because you create an assumption about someone or you've got this mind game about someone. And Paul's saying, clarify today. Don't put it off. He goes on, he speaks about stealing. Verse 38, let the thief no longer steal. Put off stealing. But then he says, put on honest work. Rather, let him labor doing honest work with his own hands. But I love this about the gospel. He goes even one step further. It's not just negative, then positive. It's negative, positive, positive. He says, so that he may have something to share. You see, it's not just about don't steal. It's about be generous. It's not just about don't make up stories. It's about speak truth to one another. Engage one another. Pursue one another. Encourage one another. And this is where he lands it, in putting off corrupting talk and putting on edifying speech. Verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. And listen, guys, that includes everything that is both not true and is culturally offsides. Certain language is not fitting for you as a Christian. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such is good for building up, and it fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Again, not just stop, but carry on. For encouragement. And then he ends it like this, verse 31 and 32. Let all bitterness, all bitterness, and wrath, and anger, and clamor, and slander be put away from you along with all malice. In other words, just pause there. Let's just search our hearts. These stories we've made up about people in the church, about the pastor, about the deacons, about the music team, about the the hospitality team who, you know, the coffee was really bad that Sunday and he's got it in for me. Because under the coffee counter, you make up the story. Not only is there coffee beans, but there's also jick. And I'm so, and you know, instead of just a shot of coffee, you put a shot of jick in too. I'm, I'm telling you. And, and not, now you've not only told yourself the story, you've told your, your neighbor the story, your friend in the church. And now not only are you offended with that person, your friend's also offended. And Paul says, stop it now. Stop. You're grieving the Holy Spirit, the bride of Christ, the church. 
And then he ends, he says, be kind to one another. Yes, we're going to make mistakes. Yes, we're going to disappoint. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted. And here's the key, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. And there's the key. I'm just as bad. If they really knew my story, if they really knew my thoughts, if they really knew my heart, and there is someone who does, God does. God really knows your every thought, and yet he has forgiven you. And if you need that forgiveness, then you can freely give that forgiveness because you recognize, I too am a sinner. I too am disappointed. What a great call to be kind and to be tender-hearted to one another as God has been towards us. And he's been so kind to us. So kind. If he would treat us the way we deserve to be treated, oh, he's been kind. So, so kind. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word to us this morning. It comes to us with conviction. It comes to us with comfort. Father, forgive us for where we have sinned and where we've gone wrong. Forgive us for creating elaborate stories in our heads that aren't true. Forgive us for running down paths where we should never have run down. Lord, we want to make right today. We want to let go of all bitterness. We want to let go of all anger. We do not want to slander. We do not want to gossip. Lord, we want to walk worthy of you. We want to put off these things, Lord. And we want to put on the cloak of righteousness, Christ's righteousness. Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, we do not want to grieve you we want to live like Christ and in one sense we confess right now that we grieve you every hour of every day but we don't want to Lord we want to fight sin we want to put it off and we want to put on Christ we want to put on righteousness we want to put on kindness We're going to put on forgiveness. Lord Jesus, you are our model. You are our savior. So we look to you right now. We thank you that you are so kind with us. So gracious. So patient. Thank you that you've been so forgiving to sinners like us. We want to extend that, Lord, to the people around us. We want to live differently, that the world may see that we are your disciples. Thank you, Jesus. Let's stand.